Hi, this is Justin Rood with the Project on Government Oversight, and I'm talking with Dylan Hetler-Gadet about the Stock Act, uh, an issue that's gotten renewed interest even in a time of crisis because of some questionable stock trades by members of Congress as they received information about the growing pandemic that we're now facing. Dylan, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you, Justin. Uh, happy to talk to you about the Stock Act and uh, conflicts of interest with members of Congress. So now this came to our attention, I think now, uh, while it seems like the rest of the world is, um, is in crisis because of stock trades by Senator Burr and others, is that right? That's right, yeah, yeah. And I think we've been, even, we've been receiving even more kind of breaking news about additional transactions by Senator Kelly Loeffler from Georgia, which are looking even uh, more suspicious as uh, time goes on and as we, we receive more information. Well, so now the Stock Act is uh, created in 2012 and governs uh, some of the activity and conduct and reporting around members of Congress owning stocks. And I understand that uh, insider trading laws may also apply to members of Congress. Can you walk us through the kind of the major provisions that a member of Congress or their staff might need to be concerned about to make sure that they're doing things by the book? Sure, yes. Yeah. So the um, Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge or Stock Act, uh, as you noted, uh, was passed in 2012, signed into law by then President Barack Obama, um, and it was supported by very healthy bipartisan margins in both houses of Congress. So um, it was a good effort at some oversight and accountability uh, when it comes to financial transactions. Um, there are two major things that the Stock Act does, one of which is that it basically reaffirms the fact that members of Congress do in fact uh, I need to comply with insider trading laws. There was some misinformation circulating at the time, and I'm not sure exactly how this happened, but there was a common view that somehow Congress had exempted itself from insider trading laws, which it hadn't. But because there was a lot of uh, talk about that, um, one thing the Stock Act does is it just basically reiterates the fact that members of Congress are in fact subject to insider trading laws. But the other major thing that it does is it creates new reporting requirements or it created new reporting requirements at the time um, with regard to any securities transaction that a member of Congress made, which typically means any kind of individual stock transaction, either buying stocks or selling stocks. Um, and it requires that those transactions be recorded in what's called a periodic transaction report. And those have to be those have to be provided to the uh, House and Senate, as well as to the Office of Government Ethics for uh, executive branch officials. And those, um, those reports need to be submitted between 30 and 45 days of the actual transaction happening. So those are the two major things that the Stock Act does. And it covers members of Congress, high-level staff in Congress, executive branch officials, high-level executive branch staffers, and so on. Um, so there are, of course, as you would imagine, some smaller details included in the bill, but as far as broad strokes, what's important about the bill, I'd say those are the two, those are the two pillars. I see. So there's no restrictions on the types of stock that you can own or the companies that, that a staffer or a member can invest in? No restrictions. Nope. Only disclosure okay. requirements. And they, I, I mean, see. yeah, you are technically not supposed to do any insider trading, but, it, but there are no restrictions that would actually actualize that prohibition. But I take it that if we're re-examining this now, there's the sense that perhaps these laws aren't going, aren't going far enough, certainly to prevent um, if the conduct that we're talking about now involving members of Congress was uh, improper. It's not clear if it was necessarily illegal, um, but certainly the timing of those trades was, uh, creates the appearance of, uh, of using inside information for personal gain. 
Do I have that? Am I understanding that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And something we often say kind of in the kind of the good government space and when we're talking about ethics and conflicts of interest and things like that is that is that the appearance of impropriety is just as important as actual impropriety here. So I happen to think, and I think most people view these transactions as being all too coincidental. So there probably was some impropriety, but even if there wasn't, like the fact that some of these transactions happened immediately after some members of Congress received confidential briefings about the coronavirus, that is at the very least the appearance of impropriety. And it's certainly, I think, creating political problems for these folks too. So even if it's, uh, even if it is within the bounds of the law, it's certainly bad for politics. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Well, so what are folks proposing to try to to try to tighten this up to try to avoid these kinds of situations, these appearances? So one thing that has become a relatively um, common idea right now in Congress, and you've actually seen this materialized in the context of a couple of bills that have already been introduced, but there are also some offices working kind of on introducing their own legislation that would essentially do the same thing, is to just flat out ban members of Congress from owning any individual stocks while they're in office. So that is a little bit of an extreme approach. Um, I, I could imagine if I were a member of Congress, I might push back and say, well, look, I mean, I have a family, I have a financial future to think about too. It's a little bit unfair to not allow me to invest in the same way that the rest of, uh, the, rest of the country can. Um, I personally don't really envision that particular policy proposal moving ahead or being able to attract very much support. I see, but a kind of a nuclear option, so to speak. That's right, that's right. If uh, a lawmaker wanted to be a little more surgical uh, about trying to fix this situation, what are some of the ideas floating around? What are the, some of the proposals? Well, so there are a couple other ideas. So one thing that, that the House and Senate could do kind of on their own that wouldn't even really require the passage of big legislation is, is to just change some of their internal rules because each Congress the incoming Congress passes a suite of rules that that are supposed to guide and govern the conduct of the members of that particular Congress. Now, what, what they could do is enact some rules in the context of those rules packages that say, for example, let's say you're a member of Congress and you're on a committee that, that has jurisdiction over the oil and gas industry, right? What this kind of new rule could say is, all right, while you're sitting on this committee that has, that regulates oil and gas, industries, you cannot own stock in that particular industry or in any companies that do major business in those industries, right? That would be a way of kind of insulating some of this vagueness around conflicts of interest and kind of what 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 information some members might have access to as a result of being on those committees and then how that leads into what they might do with regard to financial uh, transactions. I can see how that might be complicated in some situations. Certainly, for committees that oversee interstate commerce, it would be, it would be tough to, tough right. to invest in, in anything. Well, what about now? I know that I guess the current reporting is is uh, with thirty to forty five day. Um, that seems like a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, is anybody talking about tightening that up? Yeah, absolutely. So that's another idea out there. So, but within the context of the Stock Act, you could certainly envision some kind of tightening up on the reporting requirements. So as opposed to the 30 to 45 days, maybe you have a 10 to 15 day window or a 15 to 30 day window. That way we have more rapid access to this information. And if any kind of oversight or investigation needs to be done, you at least are able to do it a bit more quickly. I see. If I was a member of the public and I wanted to see um, these reports or get alerts when they came in, 
is there a website that I can go to or is there a tracker I can set to, to get an email when my member is, has filed a new disclosure? Well, here's another problem, and I'm glad you pointed that out, Justin, because the portals that these, these periodic transaction reports are housed on are absolutely atrocious, and they are not user-friendly, and they are not intuitive, and it is very difficult to actually track down these particular financial disclosure forms. And this is true for both the House, the Senate, and the Office of Government Ethics. The Office of Government Ethics actually, that's who handles all of these financial disclosures when it comes to executive branch officials. Um, but across the board, it is just really difficult to track these reports down. And there is not even a requirement that they be text files. Oftentimes what they are are just scanned versions of paper documents, which is not exactly meeting 21st century digital accessibility standards. So that's another thing that could we could certainly envision and would advocate for in the context of Stock Act reform is just making sure that the databases and the public facing websites where you know these documents are housed at least reflect modern standards of access and usability. And, uh, and now I understand that the House has an Office of Congressional Ethics, but the Senate uh, does does not. That's um, true. That's true. Would, would that help the situation and how? I think that would absolutely help the situation. The Office of Congressional Ethics, that is basically a complementary body that helps the, uh, the Ethics Committee when it comes to like being an intake repository for potential complaints. Um, being able to help with investigations. Um, and oftentimes what'll happen is something will start with the OCE, but then if it merits the attention, it'll get raised up the flagpole to the ethics committee or an official ethics committee investigations. But it performs a very, very important function in that way. And it's also not comprised of members of Congress, which means it's a little bit more quasi-independent anyway, is how I refer to it. It's quasi-independent because you don't have the concern of let's say you're trying to be a collegial member of Congress, like I could imagine there'd be some hesitation at some times about being very kind of like hard charging and strong in the way you investigate and go after certain issues because you don't want to hurt your relationship with your colleagues, right? But with an OCE that is not comprised of members of Congress, you remove a little bit of that potential, that kind of conflict of interest problem. So but now the Senate doesn't have one. The Senate doesn't have one. The House has one. And the, unfortunately, even the House one is a little precarious, though, because it relies entirely on a House resolution being passed at the start of every Congress to basically reauthorize the OCE. So what we would like to see, I think, is an OCE that is statutorily created. That way it always exists. It won't necessarily be at the whim of whichever incoming mm -hmm. Congress or whatever they decide to do. So each uh -huh. chamber should have one or perhaps there should be a statutory OCE that covers both chambers. So these sound like a lot of interesting and, and, and potentially very good ideas. The, um, I guess the question that I'm left with is, if, even if we were to see a Congress that improved the tracking uh, and made their reporting more accessible to the public, especially the Senate side, it sounds like the, they were to tighten up the reporting requirements, um, if they were able to create this um, Office of Congressional Ethics on the Senate side, uh, it still sounds like the transactions that the senators engaged in would not, none of that would have prohibited those transactions from, from taking place. I mean, in some sense, the, the problem would still exist with any of these uh, smaller provisions. Is that right? I think you're onto something there. And although one point in favor of the Stock Act is because of the disclosure requirements, we do know about the transactions made by Senator Burr, by Senator Loeffler, by Congressman Welch. So, so on one hand, you could say that it's kind of working, but you're absolutely right that 
that the Stock Act did not prevent those transactions from happening in the first place. But one thing that would actually be a very clean, very straightforward way to sort of avoid all of this, and I like to think of this as like being upstream as opposed to downstream, is just having a straightforward requirement that anybody who becomes a member of Congress has to put all of their financial assets into what's called a blind trust. And what a blind trust basically allows you to do is it allows you to have, have any kind of portfolio you want that's comprised of any number of financial assets of any category you want. But what happens is when it's in a blind trust, those assets are managed by, an entire, by a trust manager who you are legally prohibited from having contact with. And what that trust manager must do is manage those assets with the idea of trying to maximize profits, maximize returns, that way, you're still able to plan for your financial future. You're still able to make money by be, being invested in the stock market, by be, having a diverse portfolio the way that you would want it. You just don't get to make any decisions about specific transactions with regard to those assets, which is a way to really obviate the whole insider information thing, because you may have insider information that you could use if you wanted to, but you don't have access at that time, and you can't make those those decisions with regard to your trend, uh, your assets and your financial transactions. So it's a way to sort of clear all this stuff out of the way. You basically eliminate the option of using insider information on your own financial assets. Oh, that's interesting. And that would also, uh, I think, uh, alleviate some of the complications around trying to determine what is or is not a, uh, an allowable investment um, for a member of a particular committee, or if they're on a subcommittee, but not, uh, you know, is are there particular businesses that are relevant to that subcommittee that aren't as relevant to the full committee? All these sorts of issues could be sidestepped if everything was just in in blind trusts. That's right. That's right. All these issues would be sidestepped, and you, as a member of Congress, or you, as a covered individual, would would still have the comfort of knowing that you have an investment portfolio. Well, the blind trust arrangement seems like a, a simple way to protect members and the public from um, the use of inside information. Um, it seems like that might be good for others, for other officials too. Yeah, I would, I would absolutely say that, particularly if you're talking about like Supreme Court justices and judges, um, yeah, high-ranking employees in the federal judiciary. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of non-public sort of confidential information that that those people are privy to as well. So we'd want to make sure there would be some kind of a firewall there too. So the, the blind trust idea, is there, is there legislation out there? Are there folks um, floating bills or is this just discussion or, or where, where do the things stand? At the moment, there is no bill that I am aware of that has this sort of blind trust kind of requirement, like flat out, just you have to have a blind trust if you become a member of Congress or something like that. Um, there are provisions in a couple of bills that say, well, if you, like you can put your assets in a blind trust, you know, but those tend to happen in the context of a bill that is flat, flat out banning the ownership of stock. So my view would be that like as the cleanest sort of most straightforward way to do this is just have the, blind trust requirement. It's not an option. You just have to do it if you become a member of Congress. Well, so if this is an issue that somebody wants to get involved in, either as a citizen or a member of Congress, what what are next steps? Who should they be talking to? Sure. So as a citizen, I would certainly encourage everybody to reach out to their respective um, members of Congress and um, and raise the raise the issue of how important it is that we we as a public, we as a voting body can trust that our our elected representatives are doing their job with an eye towards our interests and not not with an eye towards enriching themselves. 
especially enriching themselves with the use of insider information that the rest of us don't have access to. So, so the more that Congress hears about that from constituents, the better. Um, as far as at the staff level or at the journalist level or anything like that, if you're interested in talking through uh, these ideas or want to bounce ideas back and forth or want to work on drafting something up, um, I am happy to talk to anybody and everybody who's interested. Again, my name is Dylan hetler Goddett, and I, uh, I'm a policy analyst uh, with POGO. So if you want to reach me, my uh, email address would be Dylan, D-Y-L-A-N, H as in Hulu, G as in gorilla, and that's at pogo.org. Hulu gorilla. I think I might just start calling you Hulu gorilla. I like that. <laughs> Good nickname. Um, <laughs> Dylan, no, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, I hope the good things come. Happy to do it, Justin. Thank you. Take care.